I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Constance Pruitt, a PhD candidate and instructor in the political science department at Howard University, specializing in comparative politics in Africa, international relations, and American government. Connie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Grant and Zoe, for having me today. How did you get into foreign policy? I first want to start off by saying that the views expressed today are my own and are not a reflection of any institution. Many of my students actually ask me this, um, especially in my introduction to political science class or international relations course. For me, my interest in IR, international relations and foreign policy, really started at a young age, I would say around five or six. In elementary school, I was always fascinated with watching world news and seeing various global leaders and different types of governance, different cultures, languages, geographics, and wanted to know and and see more. So toward my senior year of high school, the events of the Sudanese Civil War really started to ignite something in me. And seeing refugees of interstate conflict actually come to my school was really a defining moment for me. So it was then that I wanted to learn more about inter and interstate violence and war in the global South, particularly in Africa. Additionally, having a shared diaspora as an African-American woman with the continent and seeing people such as Secretaries of State Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, in those foreign policy spaces really helped bridge together this notion that I had about pursuing international affairs. I'd love to hear more about how you originally chose to do your master's thesis on Somalia. I mean, obviously, there's such a complex and challenging history to mine there. So I'm sure from a political science perspective, there's lots of material. But I find it of particular interest because in 2016, when I was working at the World Bank, I did some work in Mogadishu. And so I'm always interested in how people find themselves uh, focused on Somalia's story. I was in my African studies class in my master's degree in IR. We had an assignment to look up Freedom House and look up the FSI, which used to be called the failed state index, but now correctly the fragile state index. What I noticed immediately was Somalia was constantly number one on the list over and over again. And I wasn't as familiar with Somalia when I went to graduate school. I was familiar with it to a certain extent, but not at an in-depth level. And so I started to investigate more. I was like, okay, this is chronic. Somalia is really having a hard time when it comes to its governance. And so I started to do further and further research and the events of, you know, Mogadishu and what happened there. And I said, you know what, this deserves more investigation. I would love to write my master's thesis on Somalia's fragile state status and not just from a U.S. perspective, but also from the perspective of those, from the African perspective as well, what went wrong. So I actually did historical analysis of Somalia in a pre-colonial antiquated situation in which I decided that I would look into the ethnic groups within Somalia and how they were divided post-colonial border configurations during the scramble for Africa after the Berlin Conference. And so that really ignited my interest in my master's degree, I completed that 
several years ago. I won't give away my age, but it's it's definitely something that's really important. And Somalia continues to experience, you know, instability. Unfortunately, Somalia isn't the only fragile state on the continent. In the last 18 months, there have been coups in five African countries. What are the larger trends that are making conditions well-suited for these coups? Within the past 18 months, as you said, there have been six successful coups within five African nations. And those countries are Chad, Guinea, Sudan, twice in Mali, unfortunately, and most recently in Burkina Faso. And that's not even including the attempted coups within the region either. And this is definitely an alarming trend for democracy on the continent. So I'd like to approach that question from just talking about the democratic situation within Africa. But I do want to preface this conversation by saying that democracy has, is, and will always continue to be a fragile balancing act. Safeguarding democratic norms, representation of the people by the people, basic human rights, free and fair elections, a form of a republic, that will always need to be protected. And so we've seen instances on the global stage in which a nation state was once democratic and in a matter of years, their democracy declined or was in a more severe case, completely dissolved. And so no matter how stable a country appears, no state is immune from threats toward democratic political systems. Furthermore, historical evidence does, however, suggest that in pre-colonial Africa, there have been democratic principles which shape their interactions with society. So the kingdoms of Botswana and Ghana are examples. But for context regarding the recent coups, Mali's first coup was the first in the wave back in August of 2020. That was their first coup. And the military took advantage of public anger at a stolen parliamentary election and the government's failure to protect its people from violent extremism and arrested President Kita at that time and forced him to resign on state television. Next, there was a coup relatively unforeseen by the international community in Chad, I believe in April of 2021. And a president had ruled there for three decades and was actually killed on the battlefield and his son was quickly installed in place, which was actually a violation of the constitution. And then in March of 2021, there was a failed coup attempt in Niger. In September 2021, there was a high-ranking official trained by the United States that overthrew the Guinea president who was trying to hold on to power. And then in October, it was Sudan's top generals who actually seized power, tearing up a power-sharing deal that was supposed to actually lead to a country's first free election in decades. So we haven't seen this amount of successfully-led coups in the region since 1999. It can become a plague. Today, I believe, um, ECOWAS and West African leaders actually called an emergency summit on unfolding situation in Burkina Faso, where the new military leader, Lieutenant Dambiba, told the nation in his first public address that he would actually return the country to constitutional order once conditions were right, which really left tremendous ambiguity and left political leaders in the region very concerned. So all of this is to say that coups are definitely contagious, especially in a region where there's widespread economic and political discontent. 
we're seeing this trend continue as the five nations that have recently experienced military coups form a actually a broken linear line that stretches across the continent from Guinea on the west to Sudan in the east. And that's not a coincidence. There are issues of humanitarian crisis, food insecurity, political turmoil, instability due to terrorism and extremist organization activities and insurgencies in the region, poor health conditions, a growing unemployment rate that's really devastating and disenfranchising youth populations. So there are some who are viewing civilian-led governance thinking maybe this isn't working. Maybe there needs to be a form of military-led government, and they are attempting to pursue that route. Therefore, sadly to say, there will likely be more coup attempts in the next several months. Things may get worse before they actually get better. However, coups are not the only threat to democracy in Africa. There are trends on the continent with disputable elections, constitutional upheavals. This is really not surprising considering there has been an increase in the number of political elites or leaders fervently holding on to power by either attempting to expunge or postpone presidential term limits. Examples of this include the late President Robert Mugabe of Mozambique, more infamously. Other examples include President Kabila of the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, the president of Uganda, President Museveni, and others. So there are too many African nations that are letting presidential term limits just slip, which some would actually argue further undercuts democratic values in the region. But there's also concerns regarding the integrity of elections. So leaders who want to remain in power, especially if they come from a dominating or a larger ethnic group within the country, may do so at the expense of free and fair elections. Additionally, there are key actors increasingly engaged with African nations that do not practice democratic governance as seen by the West. Some of these actors include Russia, China, Brazil, for example. And these states have undoubtedly have a presence and an influence on the continent. And for those who are looking for an alternative to democracy, if they feel that it's not working for them, that's where they will look. What has the Biden administration's response been to both the coups that we've seen over recent months, but also democratic backsliding on the continent more generally? And I'm also sort of curious what your perspective is on what role the United States should be playing in response to some of these developments. The United States government under the current Biden administration I would actually say I am pleased that they actually held the summit, I believe in December, on the presidential initiative for democratic renewal. And so it was a policy that was part of this summit for democracy. That's really important for the United States. At one point, the United States was or arguably is the leading democracy on the global stage. And so the Biden-Harris administration moving forward with the Summit for Democracy back in December was really important. And so this presidential initiative for democracy renewal was and is a policy that basically forms an assistance program. It's a set of new policy initiatives and foreign assistance programs 
that furthers democracy building or democracy efforts by defending human rights and corruption globally. It was reported that the United States will commit over 400 million, I believe up to $424 million toward this initiative this year in 2022 in order to defend, sustain, and to strengthen global democracy. And the summit's themes were supporting a free and independent media, fighting corruption, strengthening democratic reformers, and advancing technology for democracy, and then defending free and fair elections. So I think the summit for democracy was definitely a great first step for the United States. There is more that will definitely need to be done. I believe that in the past several years under the previous administration, there was a bit of a lag when it came to U.S. foreign policy and U.S. relations in Africa. So there's some making up to do. But I think this is a great first step. Let's zoom in a little bit on some countries that have been in the news recently. Ethiopia, of course, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard me talk about the ongoing civil war. Right now, the central government seems to have beaten back the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front back to Tigray. What would a brokered peace look like? Will the civil war actually be ending soon? So the situation in Ethiopia and the Tigray region in particular is quite disheartening. And so to give a little bit of historical context, conflict between the government of Ethiopia and the forces in the northern Tigray region has essentially thrown the country into turmoil. So fighting has been going on since November of 2020, destabilizing the population and really destabilizing the Horn of Africa, leaving thousands of people dead with hundreds of thousands of others living in famine conditions. And the Tigray crisis is complex. It's multifaceted, but at risk of oversimplification, the root cause analysis of this situation really stems from, but not entirely, on the politics surrounding their system of government. In 1994, Ethiopia has had a federal system in which different ethnic groups control the affairs of the various regions, 10 regions. And the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF for short, was influential in setting up that system. And so under the coalition, Ethiopia experienced more stability and prosperity, but there were still concerns that were routinely raised by the international community regarding the human rights situation and the democracy levels within the region. So it wasn't perfect. So this slow discontent eventually evolved and brewed over into protest, leading to government reforms that saw Mr. Abi Ahmed appointed as prime minister. Ahmed was influential in creating the Prosperity Party and removed key Tigrayan government leaders from their positions because they were accused of suspected corruption. Additionally, the prime minister was a key figure in resolving a long-standing territorial dispute with Eritrea, which earned him the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2019. So although this gave Ahmed popularity on the international stage, those in the Tigray region remained unimpressed. The Tigray leaders saw Ahmed's reforms as an attempt to essentially centralize power and destroy Ethiopia's federal system. And then the tensions came to a boiling point this past September 
when Tigray held its own regional elections without the clearance or support from the central government. And the central government deemed the elections illegal. And so escalated violence ensued. There were forces sent to Tigray. There has been a large humanitarian crisis, refugees, and deaths since. In December, the prime minister halted the advance of their forces in the Tigray borders. But yet there are still airstrikes that have continued that has led to even more civilian casualties. And so humanitarian access has also been a concern. It's been restricted. And about a month ago, Ethiopian lawmakers authorized the establishment of a commission for national dialogue. And the UN Secretary General and other diplomats and commentators, they've all called for the various sides to begin an end of conflict negotiation strategy. And so there have been some reports as of late, not confirmed or not entirely confirmed, that Ethiopian government should be or is willing to potentially start negotiations with TPLF. If that is the case, it's not going to be an easy or expedient process. What will actually be brokered? Will there be peace broker in the region at all? What will it look like? It could be the creation of a more formalized autonomous state for the Tigray region. It could be an interstate treaty, a creation of a new nation state, a definitive ceasefire agreement, or an agreed representative government that is an amalgamation of both a BMS central government and allies with perhaps proportional representation of the Tigray region and their allies. So only time will, will really tell. It seems to me that there is still a lot of turmoil around poorly drawn country boundaries, which have put different ethnic groups together across the region post-colonialism. Do you see the, a likelihood of more breakups of states? Do you see more of these like autonomous regions, like a Tigrayan autonomous region? Do you see like a Swiss federal system getting created in some states? Do you think that African nations are still figuring out how to, to make these imperialist borders work? Absolutely. Not every nation, but many. And so I would not be surprised if we see a trend continue where you're starting to see various nations start to break up even more. South Sudan being, of course, the, the youngest country on the international stage or the youngest internationally recognized country, I should say, on the international stage. And it's been, you know, several years, but I suspect there's more to come because these borders that were drawn during, you know, colonialism, they were linear, they were strategic for the purposes of the countries that were colonizing, but not at all keeping in mind the inhabitants in the continent. And so you saw this happen in Somalia within various other countries in which you had groups of individuals, ethnic groups that were divided simply based off of political border configurations. And so now everyone's trying to figure it out. And so a lot of people may say there are, you know, X, Y, and Z issues as to why governance tends to be problematic within the African continent for some countries. 
but you have to look back to and give a historical analysis of where they're coming from. So there was an independence movement not even that long ago. There are still political leaders alive and well that were the leaders or the beacons of this movement of independence post-colonialism. So it really hasn't been that long for the African continent. And so now I think is the time that you'll see more people starting to figure it out and determine whether or not the political border configurations in which they have been confined to since colonialism is actually working for them and if they need to change that. You mentioned South Sudan and how South Sudan is one of the youngest countries and newest countries to gain independence, uh, which it did, I believe, in 2011. And I remember back then the Obama administration was really hailing it as this like big, big victory and played a big role in many ways in kind of like ushering it into independence. But obviously, in the years that have followed, the country has been plunged into this very protracted and brutal civil war. And all of the attempts at peace deals, I think, have largely been disappointing. I want to better understand, like, what is the lesson that we should learn from South Sudan, both for the United States and more generally, you know, for the rest of the world? There are definitely things to be learned in the situation with South Sudan as a cautionary tale. The Sudanese civil war began back in 1983 when the military regime attempted to impose Sharia Sharia law nationwide. And so the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, SPLA, led insurrections in the South, which was a region dominated by animists and Christians. So after years of fighting, South Sudan eventually gained its independence from Sudan in July July 9th, I believe, of 2011. The outcome has been controversial. It's really interesting to see where we are now with South Sudan. As the world's youngest internationally recognized country, it's garnered widespread attention. As to be expected, there was a lot of enthusiasm in the creation of this new nation state. And in that enthusiasm, there were red flags that were in hindsight, ignored, or at least brushed aside. So occasional outbreaks of violence over the two years that followed the South Sudanese independence were really dismissed as part of the process, uh, growing pains or ethnic clashes that wouldn't really result in significant conflict. And so the international community was unfortunately wrong. It did result in something fairly significant. So by the end of 2013, the crisis ignited first by this power struggle between the nation's leaders. There was a falling out between the president and the vice president at the time, coupled with unresolved tensions between ethnic groups in the country. It really resulted in a catalyst for conflict. Therefore, one among the many plethora of lessons that should be learned regarding South Sudan is that we should learn from South Sudan in that state building is not an easy task. The creation of a nation state is not an immediate remedy for years of turmoil in which many of the pre-existing issues that led to the creation of the new state are still present. And lastly, in a heightened optimistic environment as the U.S. was, as many other key actors on the international stage were at the time, It is really easy to ignore 
whether voluntarily or involuntarily, the warning signs of conflict brewing beneath the surface. So it's important as a lesson learned to stay vigilant in ensuring the stability of newer nations, regardless of how bright their prospects appear. Turning to your area of research, let's talk about the BRICS in Africa. What are you seeing as their influence in the region? BRICS are an intergovernmental organization comprised of those five countries. And they're an informal international organization of countries that have spanned over a decade, essentially calling for Global South to Global South cooperation. So since 2009 or 2011, if you include South Africa, the BRICS have declared its commitment to cooperation for the promotion of fellow developing countries. So the advancement efforts of the organization and its individual member states have heavily focused on the African continent for over a decade, making the region its heaviest trade partner. Some may consider this the new scramble for Africa as many key players are vying for African resources, such as rare earth elements, for example. Therefore, Brazil, Russia, and China in particular, I'd love to discuss, and to an extent, India as well. They are really playing a key role on the African continent, but in different ways. Briefly for Brazil, I do want to mention them for a moment. Brazil actually shares a language and an African diaspora with several African nation states and creating a level of influence, most notably in the Lusophone speaking nations such as Mozambique or Angola, for example. So former President Lula of Brazil often discussed constituencies between Afro-Brazilians and Africans and actually created the Brazil Africa Forum. And there are a lot of forums that have been created by Brazil, by India, by China. Additionally, Brazil has strong political economic ties with some of the nations, and Angola being a prime example. Angola became its largest recipient of Brazilian aid, or as they refer to it as technical assistance, back in 2015. Furthermore, Brazilian-owned MNCs like Odebrecht or the Valet in Mozambique had a significant presence on the continent. And then Brazil is also a member of Ibiza, IBSA, India-Brazil-South African Coalition, which, which has been really popular. China is another key player on the African continent right now. And China has interacted with the other BRICS member states, such as Russia. But one of the things I really want to emphasize was their or is their annual forum on China-Africa cooperation. It's incredibly popular. It has been reported that more African heads of states actually attend China's forum than some UN meetings. So that is something to take into consideration and to keep watch for. So Sino-African relations, particularly in South Africa, has occurred for some time. China has a large population within the South Afri African diaspora as well. And China also has much talked about uh, BRI or the Belt and Road Initiative. And the BRI is a strategy initiated by China that seeks to connect Asia with Africa and Europe even though it's not discussed as much, Europe is a key player as well. 
And so with the BRI, they are hoping to connect land and maritime networks with the goal of improving regionalism, increasing trade, and strengthening economic growth. It could be argued that BRI, though ambitious, is about much more than infrastructure efforts. Their initiatives can be viewed as an effort to expand their sphere of influence, soft power, or perhaps create a network of interdependent markets. There are also those who might argue that China is using BRI as a strategy to fund major infrastructure projects in developing countries that are less economically stable in order to cast this debt over their heads and to have leverage within their governments. And perhaps that's the case. But what is more interesting is that in recent development with China, who has focused heavily on Africa for some time, they've actually decreased its commitment to the continent from 60 billion to 40 billion. And to me, that indicates that they may be redirecting or perhaps sharing their attention with Africa in another region. And I would say that's likely Europe. And Europe has always been on the agenda, like I said earlier, for the expansion of the BRI with Italy, Greece potentially on board. And it's possible that this is where the lack of commitment finances are now being rerouted. And then there's Russia, which I know Grant is interested in in talking about. Before you go on to Russia, it seems like with the BRICS, they're also not great at governance. You know, Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, none of them are particularly known for having very clean and well-functioning democratic government structures. So is there concern that along with the economic movements, that they're also helping to prop up some bad regimes in the continent as well? Yes, I do think that could be a concern. When you look at the political culture and the political economy and the political systems of these BRICS member states, they're not the most democratic, (laughs) I should say, right? You have instances of arguably, you know, authoritarian regimes and countries that have been historically and may continue to be power rivals uh, comparatively or with the United States, right? Especially when you think of Russia and you think of China. And so there is a concern there. Um, I know there are some in the foreign policies, U.S. foreign policy space that are keeping a close eye on the BRICS. And it's exactly why I've decided to write my dissertation on the BRICS activities, because For some time, they have been going a little bit more unnoticed. When they first came about in the early 2000s and with the catchy name of BRICS prior to South Africa joining, it was getting a lot of attention. But then that attention really started to wane. And over the years, even though their attention started to wane in the West, their activities did not. They continued to be vigilant and extremely active within the global South especially within the African continent. And that's what we're seeing today. That coupled with their influence and the instability of certain African nations, they might be looking to these other countries as influential in in terms of role models or how to model their perhaps new governances. And that could be a concern for democracy on the continent. 
I understand that Brick countries are, are in many ways deploying huge amounts of capital, including into infrastructure projects, as you mentioned. But I'm curious how that has influenced sentiment and perception of these countries, of the BRIC countries within different African nations that are the recipients, and whether or not you can perceive some sort of changing opinion over time. I don't know whether or not your research even touches on any of those topics, but I guess I'm just curious, like what, like what that feels like if you're actually, if you're in Addis or, or somewhere else, like, can you feel the presence of China funneling capital into your country for the, the building of highways, for example? My research doesn't touch upon that exactly, but I'd be more than happy to answer. And it's actually a complex answer. So there are some Africans, some African nations who actually are welcoming it. They welcome the partnerships with some of these BRICS member states, and they feel as though it is beneficial to them. Um, the technical assistance, the infrastructure initiatives, and that is something to keep in mind. But then there are also some Africans, some countries in which they are starting to change the tide in their opinions. There was an report by Afrobarometer regarding how Africans view the amount of aid they are receiving from these various emerging economies of Brazil, Russia, China, for example. And what is interesting is you're starting to see a trend where there are some countries in which now they're looking at this assistance and they're saying, it's too much. We receive too much aid. But there are still those who welcome it. And so that's what makes it really complex, right? African nations are not a monolith. Everyone is completely different. So you may have a country such as South Africa, who not only is an African nation, but also a member of the BRICS. They would be more inviting to BRICS initiatives, as opposed to, you know, for example, maybe a country such as Nigeria who may be more welcoming to some of the BRICS member states, but not entirely all because they have been a leading economy on their own. So they might not necessarily need or want as much of a strong relationship amongst the BRICS member states as others. How do you talk to average non-foreign policy focused Americans about why governance challenges in Africa are important for America to be involved in? I approach it the same way I approach my freshman students fresh out of high school <laughs> in my introductory courses, uh, because that's actually really important to get them engaged, because if they feel like it doesn't matter to them in their world, they completely check out. <laughs> So I would say I try to change my language. Um, I do understand that not everyone has been studying international affairs as long as I have. But to really put in the perspective of how what's going on with in foreign affairs and amongst the BRICS can affect them. Foreign policy, as well as domestic policy, can affect the everyday lives of American citizens. So that's usually where I first start. And I think that's usually is where it will start to pique their interest. Like, hmm, really, I've never heard that before. Why? I know domestic policy can affect us, but how can foreign policy affect us? And then from there, talking about how if foreign relations 
between, you know, an African nation and the United States who were once who were once allies start to deteriorate. What does that mean in terms of goods and products and services that are being, you know, imported and exported between that country? for example. And then I start to kind of go a little bit more into how that will affect their everyday life. So if there's a falling out with Liberia, but Liberia has, you know, such a strong presence of rubber, for example, it's like, what's going to happen to our cars? Our, you know, we need rubber for our tires, for our cars. How will we drive around? How will you bike? And so that's usually how I approach it initially. And then I start to do a slow, deep dive into kind of like the historical context and then bring them up to date with current events. With that, let's turn to our final segment where we discuss something in the news, either political or cultural, that we've been watching this week. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? Sure. I'm going to do a cultural one this time around, which is that I just started watching the HBO TV show Gilded Age recently, which just began airing in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I think from a sort of critical perspective, maybe it leaves something to be desired. But as a New Yorker, uh, as somebody who enjoys historical dramas and who also likes to be transported in the middle of February in a COVID winter, it is totally hitting the spot. Connie, what are you following this week? Sure. So I am an avid reader of Jane Austen novels. So I've been following the updates on new film adaptations. There are actually two in development this year for one of Jane Austen's novels called Persuasion, which I feel is probably her most underrated work. So I'm very enthused about these developing films. But additionally, I would definitely be remiss if I did not also mention that. I've been following the bomb threats to HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities. The FBI has since identified persons of interest, I believe five to six juveniles, as the reports are now saying. It has been a really unfortunate way to start Black History Month. So hopefully all of the individuals responsible are known to the authorities. So the threats will immediately cease. This week, I want to talk about organized labor. On the day we're recording this, Democrats are trumpeting a fantastic jobs report and Biden's new executive order aimed at strengthening unions in federal construction contracting. Inside the Beltway, though, things aren't looking as good. HuffPo reported that workers at the Center for American Progress are threatening a strike over low wages. The Washington Post, Business Insider, and others are reporting on the bad pay and working conditions in Congress, the true scope of which has been made increasingly clear by the anonymous Instagram account, Dear White Staffers. I have worked for progressive organizations and have even been a part of labor organizing in some of them. There's nothing more demoralizing than progressive organizations and people failing to live up to their values when they're in management. So to my friends at the CAP Union and the newly forming Congressional Workers Union, solidarity today Solidarity tomorrow, solidarity forever. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's NextGen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Connie at her website, ConstancePruitt.com. 
If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is hopefully brought to you by the New York Times. I too am willing to sell my widely popular and addictive content for an undisclosed low seven-figure sum. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.